This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, well, they say a week's a long time in politics, and it's been a pretty long one for RNZ too, since the revelation of editorial failures in its international news online. Now, some analysts are citing global, state-sponsored campaigns at work in the media, propagating propaganda. But is all that a bit paranoid? Good timing for a Harvard University expert in that to turn up in this country. To use this vehicle and that legitimacy to spread this propaganda, I think, is one of the most important pieces of this puzzle that we would need to explore more. But first, we look back on how the inappropriate edit saga developed this past week at RNZ and what the consequences could be for all our news media when the dust settles. I haven't really been following the news. It's, uh, <laughs> Unusual for you on the show, Mel. It's, uh, we never expect you to, but we still invite you on. Okay. Um, this feels like a real estate agent describing a great view. <laughs> that was comedian Melanie Bracewell last Thursday on TV Channel 3's weekly news quiz Seven Days, stumped by a picture of a man with a reporter's notebook and a pen peeking through a spy hole in a wall. Host Jeremy Corbett then put Melanie out of her misery, telling his news-shy guest that the story currently causing misery at RNZ was the one the image was hinting at. All right, uh, no, no points for you at all, actually. Uh, Radio New Zealand digital journalist has been stood down after it emerged. They'd been editing news stories on the broadcaster's website to give them a pro-Russian slant, which is kind of disgusting, and you'd never get infiltration like that on seven days. Our security is too strong. It's strong like a bear, strong like the glorious Russian state and its leader Putin. Our security is not weak like the West. So... I just read the words, I don't know what I said. The revelation that kicked off a media frenzy about propaganda, misinformation, Russia, Ukraine, truth, trust and editorial standards has been no laughing matter though for RNZ this past week. And the day before that, the cartoon in the Stuff Papers, featuring an RNZ radio newsreader with a Pinocchio-length nose, didn't raise any laughs at RNZ either because none of the slanted stories in question ever went out in the news on the air. They were only to be found online. And this was a significant distinction, as it turns out, because the checks and balances aren't quite the same, or made by the same staff, as Morning Report host Corin Dan told Morning Report listeners and Media Watch last Monday. In radio, for example, a reporter writes a story, sends it to a sub-editor, who mm. will then check it, and then there's a newsreader has to read it. There's a couple of stages. Maybe even a chief reporter would have checked it as well. Yes. What I'm trying to establish is what sort of checks and balances were there to ensure that that world story was properly vetted and checked. And that question and others will be asked by the external experts appointed on Wednesday to run the rule over RNZ's online publishing procedures for a review that will be made public. Now on Thursday a similar point about oversight was made by a former RNZ colleague of Corin Dan, Brent Edwards, now the political editor at the NBR. For a couple of years I was the director of news gathering and in that role, I essentially had a large responsibility for RNZ's news coverage. But I technically had no responsibility whatsoever for what, what went on the web. That's a completely separate, digital is separate from news. And so, I, I mean, I think that p- partly plays into it. And I would imagine from this panel that's set up, maybe one of the recommendations they might make would be that digital should be integrated as part of the news division and therefore a lot more editorial control then imposed on what goes on the web. 
And in that NBR interview, Brent Edwards went on to say that the review of all this could end up doing all news media a favour. And as NBR colleague Dieter Deboni pointed out in that interview, the circumstances will have echoes at all other New Zealand media which have gone digital. But for the grace of God go other outlets. I mean, I worked at TVNZ and there was a rush to digital as well and this, you know, lots of resources going in but little oversight from the main newsroom. Well, this weekend a minister in the former national-led government, Nathan Guy, told the News Hub Nation show what he wanted out of the RNZ review. And heads need to roll in RNZ. If I was the broadcasting minister, I would be publicly saying I'm really disappointed. I want the chair in my office, I want to hold RNZ to account, I want time frames, I want accountability, because we just can't afford to have our public broadcaster tell unfortunate mistruths to the New Zealand public. But in that same discussion, Newsroom's co-editor Mark Jennings told Nathan Guy that RNZ's low-budget digital news transition happened under his government, which froze RNZ's funding. His, oh, it's all my fault. No, <laughs> you know, his, his government underfunded um, oh, Radio New Zealand. On, no, they did. They totally did. The what, current, so, the what, current, so simply it's a national government's issue for editorial oversight. That's no, rubbish. No, no, here's, here's the thing, Nathan. This, this outfit, RNZ, has had 15 years of underfunding. This is what happens when you underfund an organisation for so long. Well, we'll have to wait and see what the review eventually reveals and recommends. But after all the headlines that this story has generated over the past seven days, RNZ might actually have been happy if more people, like Melanie Bracewell on the Seven Days show, hadn't been following the news lately. But she was still pretty quick off the mark last Thursday on Seven Days, with this quip just after Jeremy Corbett had put her in the picture. I love this Russia strategy to be like, first we take New Zealand's fourth best and fourth most popular news site. (laughs) (laughs) Then the world. (laughs) Well, it was just a joke, obviously, but this week some people have been wondering whether the Russian government, as opposed to the national and Labour-led ones here down the years, might also have had an influence on creating this problem. Later on the programme, we'll ponder that too. But on seven days this week on TV Channel 3, host Jeremy Corbett was closer to the truth, sort of, when he said this... I know that um, RNZ have come out with a statement that says, in our defence, we didn't actually realise anyone was reading our stories. Well, that, of course, wasn't RNZ's actual defence, but it did actually explain just how it took so long for the dodgy news agency stories in RNZ's online international news to become newsworthy themselves. And how that happened over a period of years has been a big story since then, especially for RNZ news programmes themselves. An RNZ web journalist who allegedly inserted Russian propaganda into news stories claims he has edited reports in that way for five years and nobody has ever queried it. Lisa Owen on Checkpoint last Monday after she spoke to the RNZ journalist at the centre of what's become a media storm. One News can reveal tonight a group of Ukrainian New Zealanders complained about what they felt was Russian propaganda at Radio New Zealand. So it could be a paid agent of influence or it could be what you call a useful idiot, a person who honestly believes is expressing his own views, in reality expressing the enemy propaganda. The next day, Monday, RNZ's chief executive Paul Thompson, who's also RNZ's editor-in-chief, fronted up on that same edition of Checkpoint to Lisa Owen, who didn't mince his words about those dodgy stories. 
RNZ boss and editor-in-chief Paul Thompson has described the altered copy as pro-Kremlin garbage. And RNZ was now taking out the trash in public, listing the corrupted stories, which had now been corrected, in a living document on the RNZ website and adding to the role of shame as they found more each day. And though the editorial buck stops with the editor-in-chief, he told Lisa Owen he didn't consider it resignation-worthy. Has anyone else in management offered up their resignation? No. Do you think some of them should? No, I don't. I think um, this is a time for us actually working together to fix the problem, um, breaches of our, of our editorial policy. The only good news in this was, Paul Thompson said, that it was confined to a small area of what RNZ does. But by the following day, RNZ had found six more stories concerning other countries that had also been edited in terms more favourable to the ruling regimes of China, Cuba, the Palestinian territories, among others. And these were also supplied originally by the reputable news agency Reuters. Now, as we said last weekend here on Media Watch, Reuters clients like RNZ are allowed to edit its stories to change the length and the style and the spellings, but clients must not, in the words of one contract seen by MediaWatch, distort the meaning. And Reuters were even saying no comment this week to their own Wellington-based reporter until Tuesday, when she was able to quote a Reuters spokesperson as saying, Reuters has addressed the issue with RNZ. But what about RNZ's relationship with its own audience and stakeholders here? Well, in Monday's morning report, Massey University's programme leader for journalism, James Hollings, called on the Minister of Broadcasting to act. I note that under the Broadcasting Act, the Minister of Broadcasting has the power to require or to ask the Broadcasting Standards Authority to investigate. They don't have the power to investigate themselves, but they can be asked to by the Minister, and I think the Minister should exercise that power. If this was the BBC, for example, they'd be in front of a select committee before you could say Beeb. The Broadcasting Standards Authority has no power over the online digital content of any broadcaster, only over stuff that goes out over the air. And it's also unlikely that the UK's Parliament would rush into an inquiry of any similar failings at the BBC. The UK's public broadcaster has layers of accountability before it could get that far, though the UK's media regulator Ofcom does take digital content into account. Now here, the government has a proposal currently to replace existing media watchdogs that were set up before the internet existed, and that would extend media regulation to online content as well, as TVNZ's Simon Merced pointed out on One News last Monday. Online news content here is self-regulated by an industry group, but that could soon change as the government looks to update the way the media is monitored with a new agency. Now, whether that actually ever happens is a story for another day. But some politicians this past week were also calling for political action over RNZ. David Seymour of the ACT Party, for example, wanted an inquiry. And New Zealand First's leader and longtime media critic Winston Peters called for a Royal Commission of Inquiry into media bias and manipulation. Now, there have been many reports in recent years about Russia seeding mis- and disinformation abroad, notably as far back as the 2016 election in the US. And on Tuesday, the Prime Minister was asked about that on Morning Report. Russian bots, Russian, Russian trolls. Does this not raise any red flags with you around those issues? Well, certainly if RNZ wants the support of any of the intelligence agencies in terms of the work that they are doing, there are, there are avenues for them to request that. Do you think that is necessary, given what has happened here? Do you think in terms of confidence that would be useful? 
Um, as I've indicated, um, I think it's important that I don't interfere in that. Last Tuesday, security and technology consultant Paul Buchanan also told Morning Report that RNZ should have been better prepared for authoritarian states messing with its news, and it was possible that Russia had inspired this. This incident that uh, has prompted this investigation may or may not be just one individual who has certain opinions about the war between Russia and Ukraine. On the other hand, it is possible that his or her stories were manipulated from abroad. And all of this really ramped up after 2019-2020 with the pandemic. And there was an irony in Morning Report going to Paul Buchanan over this. He was one of the people RNZ turned to to add balance to the story back in May 2022, all about criticism of the New Zealand government's position on the Ukraine war. The story which first rang alarm bells at RNZ, but as it's turned out, not quite loudly enough. But is it really possible or even probable that Russian state-sponsored media manipulation could be at the heart of this? Well, back in March, the Acting Director-General of the SIS told Parliament that malign foreign influence is being brought to bear on New Zealanders online. Purely around the state trying to, in a coercive, disruptive, in a covert way, influence the behaviours of people in New Zealand, influencing their decision-making. While John McKee named no names or nations at the time, his GCSB counterpart Andrew Hampton told MPs that research had shown Russia was the source of misinformation that many Kiwis were consuming in the lead-up to the occupation of Parliament last year. And what the government could or should do about that was put to the Prime Minister Chris Hipkins like this at the time. We're not the social media censorship um, agency. Um, the GCSB can identify where misinformation is, you know, is, is coming into the country and so on. But what people choose to share on their Facebook pages or on Twitter um, are matters for each individual to make decisions about. The following day on RNZ's panel, former Prime Minister's Science Advisor Sir Peter Gluckman said that media now needed to check themselves and check what they publish to foster greater public trust. How all of us behave, the media, the politicians, members of society, will determine the shape of the society into the future. Sir Peter now heads COI2, the Centre for Informed Futures at Auckland University, and last week it released a new report called Sustaining Aotearoa New Zealand as a Cohesive Society. And this week he invited the country's media executives and Media Watch to a special discussion of disinformation and media manipulation. Now this was arranged long before RNZ's current problems arose, but last Wednesday there were no prizes for guessing what dominated discussion on this theme. But has it all done real damage to RNZ or indeed the wider media? One person who was present had already made his opinions known on this, and that was Newsroom co-founder Mark Jennings, also a former news chief for TV3. And in a piece called Media Shooting Itself in the Foot, Mark Jennings said that surveys have picked up a decline in trust in news media here, and the road back for the media just hit a major speed bump. And Mark Jennings said this about that on the News Hub Nation show this weekend, on which RNZ's chair had declined to appear. Jim Mather should have been sitting here today um, explaining what this inquiry is going to involve, what questions they're asking and what they're going to do with the results, to particularly to build back trust um, for Radio New Zealand. Mm. Its trust has been hammered over this. and Also among the participants at the Koi2 workshop this week was media consultant and commentator Peter Bale, 
who's previously worked overseas for the news agency Reuters, as well as the likes of the Financial Times and CNN. He's also now the leader of the Newsroom Initiative at the International News Media Association, which promotes best practice to help put news and journalism at the heart of publishing. I think as we know from the COVID period, the parliamentary protests and so on, that trust is a problem. But I I really feel for for RNZ in this and for the chief executive and for everybody else there who does generally a great job. The issue of trust here, I think, is not so much in RNZ. It's in this person's relationship with their employer and their relationship with the facts. You know, this has been a breakdown in trust by a trusted employee. You shouldn't necessarily need to have a second or third pair of eyes when managing, uh, editing and uh, processing a Reuters story that's already gone through uh, multiple editors. You know, and, and I used to work there for 15 years. Reuters stories not only have the byline from where they were written and by whom they were written, but they also have a sort of sub byline at the bottom, which includes who edited it, you know, who, who t- really who touched the story all the way through. You know, there are process issues here, but you shouldn't necessarily need to have a huge level of additional editing when you're actually managing agency copy like this. The critical issue I suspect for RNZ from a process point of view is whether they took the initial complaints seriously enough. That is a relationship issue. The fact that Ukrainian people or or supporters of Ukraine had raised this issue, the fact that I think another journalist uh, at RNZ had raised this issue last year, that might be a a critical issue about about how quickly you respond to these things. And I I used to have, when I did big editorial jobs, a kind of reputational risk uh, piece of advice to all my team. Anything that had had a brand risk needed to be escalated very, very quickly. And, and you can't always tell what those things are going to be, but it never looks good when you knew about a problem and didn't address it in the earliest possible stage. Yes, indeed. So internally, that story was flagged on the day it was written, that there were mm. balance problems with it. And then again, some months later by the Ukrainian community, it was before the actual inappropriately edited wire stories came to light. And but- I, th- I think there's been a little bit of too florid language used about this. This person has inserted what are in some people's views, genuine talking points from those who understand or wish to support or want to have expressed what the Russian view is, that NATO encroachment was a real thing, that there were uh, Nazis in the Azov battalion in um, eastern Ukraine. You know, a different perspective in virtually everything I've seen that this person inserted, you know, including the the weird things that they put into the Hamas story, or the story about the Gaza Strip. It was very ham-fisted. I mean, there are ways to do this. I mean, if, if you look at the way, for example, The Guardian handles agency material, it will often have the byline of its own editor on the story and say Reuters and Agence France Press or whomever contributed to the story. You could have inserted the Russian perspective on this to highlight the fact that there is a different view about things like the Orange Revolution when the pro-Kremlin leader in um, Kiev was overthrown. But it isn't a completely unheard of view, and I don't think it is necessarily Kremlin propaganda as it's been described. It was just a misguided attempt to bring another perspective, I suspect, but it still represents a tremendous breach of trust by this person. Well, well and, on that, uh, on that um, though, Peter, if I can interrupt yeah. you, because you know people are now seeing offshore headlines about this and, and news organisations overseas quoting the CEO as saying the material published ended up as pro-Kremlin garbage. That's obviously not good from a reputation point of view. People it was too surreptitious, to uh, not transparent. Everything everything that RNZ should be, which, which it generally is, is very transparent about it. I think the way they've taken the stuff down, edited, republished them is exemplary. And I'm sure Paul was just trying to give a sense of uh, how seriously they were taking it. But I, I, was, I got into a dispute on Twitter some months ago with uh, Peter Hitchens, who's a journalist from the Daily Mail. 
who constantly writes that the Orange Revolution was a coup, who constantly talks about you know NATO provocation. Now the difference is, you know, Peter is a long-term journalist, but he's also a, sort of a noted commentator, and he's not just sort of slipping this into an, in, into a general news story, especially not a story written by an expert in the field. You know, so it is a legitimate view. I, I don't happen to agree with it, but I, I have this too. Sometimes I write a a weekly newsletter for the spin-off about international news. And I try sometimes to, without without spreading conspiracy theories, show that there are other perspectives on these on these stories. So those things are, limit, are legitimate to address, but not just to surreptitiously squeeze them into a story in, in some sort of perceived balance. We've seen commentary, some people saying, look, this is an accident waiting to happen in newsrooms. And indeed, at the Koitu event that we were both at this week, some executives were saying this could have happened at our place. You know, for years people have been saying sub-editing, that second uh, gate, if you like, before publication is not what it was. And we know that professional sub-editors have been shorn uh, out of newsrooms. Is that going to be something that comes up uh, in the background that this was possibly yes, a Yes, I, I absolutely think it will be. I, I do think that quite a lot of um, particularly online published material, particularly gra- grammatical mistakes, spelling mistakes, various other areas that never get corrected. But... You know, I think it is true also that editing has been diminished as a skill, but I just I don't think it's necessarily a failure of editing here. It's a failure of this person's uh, understanding of what their what their job is. But I'm sure that RNZ will will put in some additional checks, probably at some cost. I also think that there is the possibility that things like uh, artificial intelligence may actually help with this. I know news sites that are in fact already dropping content into. Chat GPT before it's published in order to check it, you know, as a sort of secondary editing process. Of course, it can also, depending on how you use it, create its own mistakes. But this is quite a good example in a way that you can already get either incorrect or slanted material in a story that hasn't gone through generative AI. So how you uh, escalate and address issues that come up at the very beginning, which have potential reputational risk, is quite an important process in the newsroom, I think. Well, RNZ has already said there will be a second level of checking on this international material already that's uh, put in place straight away. But, I mean, some people have overreacted to this in a sense that they're making the assumption that there is no checking or that journalists can press a button uh, and just publish straight to the web almost anything. Now, in some cases, that does happen. That's true, actually, I'm afraid, some quite quite often. I mean, the, the other thing is... The impact of, so, you know, in the years when I was at Reuters, speed was an absolutely huge factor. And even there, you know, nothing went to the wire without a second pair of eyes, even if it was just somebody quickly looking over your shoulder to make sure that the alert, the 86 character or 92 character alert that you were sending was accurate. I think it's extremely hard to maintain that in a world where speed, partly because of Twitter, is now a commodity. So you do rely on the integrity and accuracy of the team. And also you can fix these things transparently and quickly. I mean, that original story that was called out that was somewhat unbalanced and balance was added to it, that, that was actually a very transparent and intelligent way to do a story because a story never dies on the web. And I think that transparency is the kind of thing that's going to help RNZ through this. And if I were them, I would also look at the way Reuters does this. Reuters has the Reuters Trust Principles, which were set up in the 1940s to protect Reuters from bias, and every story carries a link to those trust principles. And I can tell you that it is almost like something you salute when you go to work. Um, (laughs) 
the vast majority of stuff does go through two eyes of news content. Yes, Even non, non-news content does get checked. But uh, yeah, it is uh, unfortunate for the people that work in this area that ARNZ that people are now kind of assuming almost that the stuff isn't checked by multiple eyes. It certainly is. And probably the subbing processes are, you know, at least as good as newsrooms of scale. Yes, no, I imagine, around, I imagine they are. And I... This is not so much a mistake as I say a breach of trust by this person, I would say, but that then becomes an employment issue. But I think RNZ should be able to turn this to its advantage. I mean, they've acted quite quickly, apart from that issue of not necessarily taking it seriously enough last year. But the transparency with which they're dealing with it now and this kind of forensic process of showing us what they're doing to the stories and editing and showing us what was wrong is really good. Mm, and I can say that I've written... Uh, Media Watch material uh, features to be published on Sunday morning along with the program and WebSub has contacted me on a Sunday morning having a look through it to say did you mean this bit is it's this part slightly ambiguous, not clear, yeah. just clarifying this? And indeed, it has been tidied up. You have a role at the International News Media Association, uh, which is um, all about best practice. And it's not just about news, right? It's about the publishing business. Uh, so there's you know, systems, processes, even software, all those sorts of things that go into a modern publishing business, news being one of them. Is the kind of mega issue in the background here that there's been a diminution of of editing. Um, so some of the content not considered news or, or t- too urgent perhaps is not going through the sort of checks that it would have done in the past. In the end, perhaps the listeners, you know, you can actually harness the power of the internet to publish things quickly, also to spot what's wrong and correct it and amplify the correction when it's spotted. I, I know it can sound a bit Pollyannaish on this, column, but you know the, we, we've never had such good quality journalism available to us from so many sources in so many places and from people who are not, in fact, journalists, just people bearing witness in the field, whether that's on video, whether that's radio, the whole growth of podcasting and so on. We have access to this. I think in this kind of case, I am certain that it is not impossible to write some software that would do a comparison with what's going out as, as to what came in in order to avoid this kind of check with stuff like Reuters. I mean, the, the Associated Press has software that checks the origins of quotes to see whether its material is being quoted out of context partly to track who's paying them and who's not. Um, so things like that software will, you know, the, the technology will help us with this as well. But I think going back to some first principles about showing our homework, not just broadcasting one to many and being prepared to enter into a dialogue with readers is really important. One thing this has thrown light on is the fact that international news isn't really a priority at RNZ. It's a small public broadcaster by international standards. So RNZ hasn't had a foreign correspondent anywhere for at least 20, 25 years. And very few reporters actually get to make reporting trips overseas anymore unless it's to do with New Zealand politics or um, prime ministerial visits and, and things like that. Yeah, no, I think it is a problem. And I and I, I wrestle with this because I haven't lived in New Zealand for a long time, but I feel that in the many years that I've been away, New Zealand has become much more inward looking and that includes the media. And I think that's for very good reason. There's been some really huge huge domestic issues to be to be dealt with. But I think we we did used to be more outward looking. NZPA uh, used to have bureaus in Canberra, Hong Kong, London, Washington. I think RNZ does its absolute best with this, talks regularly to people in um, New York and Washington and uh, Canberra. But we, we, there isn't the same team, really, that, that used to be overseas serving what they perceive to be New Zealand interests. 
Uh, and, and I think that gets reflected in politics as well. I, I was extremely surprised that um, Nanaya Mahuta went to um, Beijing without any New Zealand reporters with her, for example. Well, Peter, you mentioned earlier that some of the inappropriate editorial additions as concerning Russia and Ukraine were in fact uh, minority views perhaps, but that are raised in other media. But some commentators have said it was discussed at the Koitu event as well, the possibility that all this in the end, no, no matter how it was done, uh, you know, was prompted by this backdrop of Russian intervention, online propaganda and, and a kind of overall goal of destabilising uh, public institutions and life in, in places that are deemed by Russia to be uh, in opposition to them, particularly over the Ukraine war. Paul Buchanan on RNZ even said, you know, RNZ should have been prepared for this. Do you agree with that? or is it, 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 I, I don't. I, I agree with the threat. I, I don't believe that, that is the case in this particular incident with RNZ, but I think we need to be ready for it. As we saw with COVID and with the parliamentary protests, we need to be prepared for really aggressive US-style tactics and that's going to come both both from the right, but also from the kind of chaos-driving hybrid war techniques that Russia is particularly brilliant at. You know, they're very skilled at twisting the stories. There is a residual anti-Americanism, if you like, which then also becomes an idea that the media is in league with the establishment and therefore with the Americans. And that's New Zealand as a country with it's in five eyes. All of this stuff is, is quite important, but there is a sort of knee-jerk reaction that, you know, America must be doing something untoward and, and suspicious in everything that it does. There is a sort of tendency to have that view. But no, I don't think in this particular case that it is to do with the spread of disinformation or misinformation by Russia. Um, I think this is, this is a different set of problems, but I think we do have to be on guard against that. And if we go back to where we started, perhaps you know, the discussion at the Koi Tu workshop about is this going to be damaging to trust? The analogy with air travel uh, came up. Lots of flights successfully landing, taking off, one plane crash lands, but nobody dies. Does that mean people are going to abandon that airline, in this case RNZ, or maybe even uh, lose faith in all uh, airlines to transport them safely? Or do people acknowledge the fact that uh, most flights take off and land successfully and there's no problem? I think that's a slightly ridiculous metaphor, but let me address it. Well, in terms of the in whole, terms of whether people would actually stop listening to RNZ, because if this thing went wrong, what else no, is going think, wrong I, there? No, I think, but I think RNZ has to address the problem. And one of the reasons we don't have so many plane crashes anymore is that pilots have, you know, really disciplined, effective checklists, and they have a set of processes, you know, that it isn't just random. You need checks and balances through the process of this. It's too important for things not to go live that have uh, buried buried uh, landmines in them. You know, I just I just think that this is a very specific issue. In a way, it's, it's good that it's come up ahead of the election because it will make everybody reflect a little more. But, but I do think part of this is about process, but processes uh, are only as good as the people who are implementing them as well. That was Peter Bale, media consultant and commentator who previously worked overseas for the news agency Reuters, as well as the Financial Times and CNN. And he's now the leader of the Newsroom Initiative for the International News Media Association. And he's one of several media editors and executives who attended a disinformation and media manipulation workshop organised by Koitu, the Centre for Informed Futures at Auckland University, last Wednesday. Now, 
the guest speaker at that event last Wednesday was Dr Joan Donovan, the research director of the Shorenstein Centre on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard University in the US. And she's also the co-author of a recently published book, Meme Wars, The Untold Story of the Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. Now, she researches and tracks the sources of misrepresentation and misinformation in the media and the impact they have on public trust in media organisations and on democracy itself, and also how our media can prepare for it and defend themselves. And some of that also centres on Ukraine. In March, she told an audience at the South by Southwest Festival in the US about the internet sensation that was the Ukrainian fighter pilot dubbed the Ghost of Kiev. There was this video going around of a fighter pilot shooting down uh, six other planes. At that time, it was very popular hashtag around send planes. There was a very big movement uh, for Ukraine to have planes and the diaspora was pushing it. So when this video hits, people think Ukraine has gotten planes and that the ghost of Kyiv is shooting down these Russian planes and, and uh, it's a moment of jubilation. Now, stories about this were also published in the media here at the time, along with the rest of the world, but it was all made up. And a year ago, Joan Donovan appeared on NPR radio in the US and said that established credible radio news shows were the best way to dodge dodgy information. In this minute, I think turning on your local news at 5.30 or, or tuning into the radio is going to prevent you from one sharing potential propaganda and it's going to give you the best and most current information that has been verified. Good to know, but at the point where 15 supplied news stories had been found to be inappropriately edited by RNZ, Joan Donovan took to Twitter to say, this is wild, fake news has reached new heights. But set against what we've seen in US politics and society and about Russia and Ukraine around the world, is it really that bad? I have heard of things like corporate espionage before and these ideas that, uh, let's say, in the banking industry as well as in technology might sometimes be infiltrated in some way so as to get secrets. And usually what you see is the spoofing of a website or a URL in order to look like you're a certain outlet, distribute disinformation that way. It's very unlikely that someone would go in and work a job nine to five and then be editing articles without proper oversight. Uh, So in this context, I think when it comes to one country uh, wanting to insert their views into another country, even though New Zealand is very small, it does track that this would be a way to influence a very large group of people. I don't think any of us know the degree to which this could be an international operation or not. Yeah, so and you described uh, in your talk today outfits on the leaning to the right of US politics have created news-like products, make it like a news kind of program, but of course inject their political views over the top of it. And I mean, this is effectively just an example of this, where you have a neutral kind of copy from a Reuters news agency on a public 
broadcaster's website that's supposed to be not leaning one way or the other politically and overlaying it with politics. Is censored mirrors those sort of actions that you have to track online in the U.S.? What you learn is that they're patterned, that they happen over and over and over again until a news agency or platform company figures out a mitigation tactic, whether it's removing that link from search or uh, writing critical press or debunking those stories. But this idea of being situated within the newsroom in order to spread these ideological opinions through a vehicle that is supposed to be value neutral and non-partisan is strikes me as particularly insidious. It's hard to tell because how long would this have gone on if it hadn't been discovered? When I think about the fallout of it, um, yes, of course, uh, undermining the legitimacy of Radio New Zealand, but first and foremost, using the legitimacy of Radio New Zealand to, uh, in a parasitical kind of way, uh, you know, Radio New Zealand is the host organism, and to use this um, that vehicle and that legitimacy to spread this propaganda, I think, is one of the most important pieces of this puzzle that we would need to explore more. Well, all this is under investigation at RNZ. They've appointed a panel of uh, people to do this. But in just in general terms, your your field of tracing, tracking, identifying media manipulation, there is a problem for the media, isn't there, when you find cases of it? Should news media report and risk amplifying it? Is there a a trigger which says, okay, this needs news media uh, Mm -hmm. scrutiny? The first thing you need to do is make sure that the title only bears the truth. So you don't want any leading headline that makes people think that this is a story about disinformation. You want them to think it's about a particular fact. And then you want to create what's called a truth sandwich, where you do truth uh, in the middle, you sandwich in the disinformation, and you let them know what the logical fallacy is or what the the lie is, and then you want to package the bottom with more truth uh, and help the audience understand what they should take away from this. Because Uh, repetition is one of the biggest ways in which we see people continuously fall for disinformation because must be true multiple outlets are reporting on it so you don't want to fall into that trap Uh, as a journalist you want to make sure that the truth is up front and that your audiences understand what is the lie you would have heard our media representatives here today senior editors some of them saying look we are the ones that abide by standards and we are almost irritated, would be one way of putting it, by the notion that this is their problem to solve or they need to react to it. We now have a government that um, is proposing a review of all the regulatory bodies we have for our various media that would extend those standards into social media, into the online world. Of course, in the US, you would have First Amendment, free speech uh, hurdles in the way of that, but do you think it sounds like the sort of thing that is a good thing to do, to try and impose some standards online in line with the sorts of ones the news media already are obliged to uphold? Yeah, you have to think about it, though, differently about who's going to uphold those standards and ethics, and that has to happen uh, with the platform companies themselves. Uh, I've written about this in the past, about needing to make sure that your algorithms are not only promoting lurid curiosity, for instances. And so you want to make sure that tech companies are 
abiding by similar standards as journalism, especially if they are in the news industry. Uh, social media for a long time has been able to, as a company, scale uh, without any kind of consequences for what it means as a product to serve the customer interest. We treat social media enforcement a lot like speeding on the highway. You have to get caught. And that yeah, is they're, not they're, not, they're not applying their own terms of service, right, which in theory they yeah. require their people to abide by. But there's just too many of them for them to effectively do it. Yeah, well, but what's worse is they're also giving a pass to politicians, celebrities, people who are making them money to be able to say and do whatever they want to do. And so I think that media standards that are enforceable are required in order to protect customer interest as well as the national security of any nation state should be concerned about the quality of information that is circulating to make sure that when people are looking for information, they get what I call talk, timely, accurate, local knowledge. But if what we're being served by are these international, enormous companies that are not paying attention to the needs of individual countries, then the time has come to build a public interest internet that serves New Zealanders or serves different countries' needs in ways that respects their right to the truth. But we've started to see in very uncomfortable ways different conspiracies, different disinformation start to gain traction in everyday people's lives, especially around vaccines and public health, uh, children's safety. And so I think it's really important that people do care about the quality of the information that they're taking in and also uh, become, in their own right, internet sleuths that can figure out how to get out of the rabbit hole. That was Dr Joan Donovan, Research Director at the Shorenstein Centre on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard University in the US, where she tracks the sources of misrepresentation and misinformation in the media and how media can guard against them. Well, this week she addressed media editors and executives from all of New Zealand's major news media outlets and Media Watch at a disinformation and media manipulation workshop hosted by Koitu, the Centre for Informed Futures at Auckland University, and also Toa Toa, a non-profit group monitoring the social impacts of technology here in Aotearoa. Well, this past week it wasn't just RNZ which had to go public about stories not fit to print. A major paper also had to pull a section-leading weekend feature from its website after the story turned out not to stand up to scrutiny, although the publisher didn't quite make it clear how. Hayden Donnell looked at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch, talking to Anna Thomas last Wednesday on Nights on RNZ National. And among other things, they also talked about the intense media focus right now on political party leaders' choice of words, both when they're on and off message, where the radio listeners can weather the long weather forecasts. 20 seconds later, I'll find I've, I've drifted off. I'm in another place. Yeah, all our listeners tonight, they are hot on this weather. And the battle over the reputation of Australia's most famous soldier, who became a media executive and then went to war with a rival media company with the backing of a billionaire media mogul, but lost. Only Kerry Stokes can answer the question as to why Kerry Stokes has spent a fortune pouring absolute shit over part of the media 
and backing a man who is now found to be a war criminal. We've cared about one thing only, which is the truth. If you missed it, Midweek Media Watch is available on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free in our podcast feed, available wherever you get your podcasts. And finally this weekend on Media Watch, as we heard earlier, RNZ has discovered just how much words matter when reporting serious stuff like the war in Ukraine. But even when it's not a serious matter, the wrong words can convey the wrong meaning. And so indeed can the right words if they're in the wrong order. On Monday, TVNZ's Seven Sharp show visited Wellington's brand new attraction and described it this way. The bubble wrap's barely off at Tarkina, Wellington's brand new spanking convention centre. Well, the convention centre Tarkina is indeed brand new, but as for what you can expect when you visit, don't take Seven Sharp's form of words there too literally. Well, that's all we have for you this weekend here on Media Watch, but we'll be back with more on the media in Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10pm next Wednesday night on Nights, and then back again with Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.